Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. What I'm going to be examining today is the topic of Crusades. Now, the famous Crusades are the ones from the Middle Ages where European armies made their way down to the Holy Land or other parts of what we will call the Middle East in order to bring those areas under the rule of Christians. And we'll actually touch upon that aspect a little bit today, but for the most part, we're looking at some far more obscure examples of crusading. Because, of course, that's how we roll on this show. And even though the crusading phenomenon, as generally understood, is more of a characteristic of the medieval Western world, we will start our survey in antiquity. There were times in ancient Mesopotamian history where victorious kings would practice what has been called today godnapping, the theft of divine statues of conquered foes. They also sometimes practice ritual destruction of said statues, which has been termed deicide. This practice is detailed, for example, in the royal inscriptions put up by Assyrian rulers. Now, in terms of ancient Greek history, we actually do have some wars that had a religious basis, and they were all based upon the sanctuary at Delphi, which was sacred to the god Apollo. This was one of several Panhellenic shrines, meaning Greeks from all over their cultural world patronized this site. It had one of the most famous temples to Apollo, but it was also the site of the Pythia. This was the female oracle that would supposedly speak answers from Apollo to questions posed by individuals or by city-states and rulers from foreign lands. Apollo is said in Greek tradition to have protected his shrine at Delphi against attacks from foreigners, particularly the Persians in 480 BC, where a number of weapons seemed to have teleported out of the shrine. The Persians were also hit by thunderbolts and avalanche, and two long-dead and very tall local heroes, Philakas and Autonous, miraculously reappeared to fight the Persians. When a force of Gauls attacked in 279 BC, they were subjected to a snowstorm which blinded them, and then they were defeated soon afterwards by Greek forces. But the Greeks themselves sometimes fought for control of this shrine. So these wars are known as the Sacred Wars, and there were four of them. The first Sacred War is said to have occurred in the early 6th century BC or 500s BC. A Sacred War was proclaimed by the Amphictyonic Council at Delphi. The Amphictyony was comprised of delegates from 12 different ancient Greek tribes, and so that would cover a number of Greek city-states, such as Athens, Thebes, Sparta, and so forth. It seems that the small town of Kira, which acted as the harbor, pilgrims would use it when visiting Delphi. Well, there were allegations that the people of Kira were attacking pilgrims, robbing them, and also there was an allegation that they were cultivating land that they were not supposed to cultivate because it was sacred. It was dedicated to the god Apollo. That's going to be a recurring theme of all the sacred wars. So once the Amphictyony had declared the sacred war, the city of Kira was besieged. The identity of the commander of the besieging force changed over time as the legend of the first sacred war evolved. But the tactic eventually deployed against the people of Kira is common to all accounts, even though some of the details differ. It all relates to the use of a plant called hellebore. And hellebore is a toxic flowering plant that was introduced into the water supply of the city. And according to one of the accounts, it was actually a physician who knew the effects of hellebore, which could be used in small doses to treat things such as gout. And it caused severe illness and diarrhea in the defenders and led to their surrender. Now, the Second Sacred War 
is said to have happened right in the middle of the 5th century. During this conflict, Delphi was taken over by an army from a neighboring region called Phocis, and the Phocians were ejected from the sanctuary by a Spartan army. The Phocians seem to have believed that they had the right to control Delphi, and this is also going to be a recurring theme. Unfortunately, we don't have a Phocian historian to give their side of the issue. Plutarch's biography of Pericles states that the Athenians then restored the Phocians to control of Delphi, but then we don't get a resolution to the story in any source, so the whole thing is very mysterious. The 3rd and 4th take place in the 4th century BC and are in many ways the most important because they allowed Philip II, king of Macedonia and father of Alexander, the future Alexander the Great, to give more of a foothold in central Greece and increase his standing in the Greek world. It seems that the Phocians were the instigators again, although they were provoked. They were accused by the Thebans of cultivating land sacred to Apollo. So the Amphictyonic Council voted to levy a massive fine on the people of Phocis. But their response was not to pay the fine, but to actually send troops into the sanctuary itself, where they seized control of the temple. A sacred war was declared on them, the third sacred war, by the Amphictyans. And there were quite a few major battles involved because this conflict went on for over a decade. It said that a Phocian commander, Philomelos, went to the oracle and asked if it was acceptable to Apollo for the Phocians to control the sanctuary. And the Pythia responded, do what you want. Obviously an ambiguous answer, which was the Pythia's stock in trade to a certain degree. But Philomelos took it as divine approval straight from the horse's mouth. They actually did something which really hurt their reputation in the eyes of many other Greeks, where they tapped into the vast treasures that had been dedicated over a long period of time at the temple and used those treasures to strike a new series of coins, which they used to pay mercenaries. And those coins were later considered cursed. Not too many of them have survived to the present day. There's actually a side story of a hetaira, a courtesan, over in Italy, who had been given some of Apollo's treasures as a present from one of her clients, a Phocian officer, and she was showing them off to people. And when word of this got around, a group of priests of Apollo stoned the woman. That concept of summary execution for sacrilege against the god Apollo was also seen in the war itself because this third sacred war was noted for mass slaughter of captives. One of the earliest ones was where the Phocians defeated the Locrians, and instead of selling their prisoners into slavery after the battle, which was common, they actually threw captives over a cliff. The Phocians claiming later that they were defending Apollo against these sacrilegious Locrians. But the same tactic, in a way, was used against them by Philip II. Before the Battle of the Crocus Field, Philip II had all of his troops put on crowns of laurel leaves, the plant sacred to Apollo, symbolic of this deity. And not only did Philip's army inflict massive casualties on the Phocian force, but captives were drowned in the aftermath. The Fourth Sacred War involved an accusation of cultivating sacred land directed against another small town, Amphissa. This gave Philip II his excuse to enter central Greece yet again. By this point, he had actually gotten several votes on the Council of the Amphictyony and could actually dominate that council, so he could completely claim that he was fighting on behalf of the god Apollo. This eventually led to the major battle at Chironea in 338, which ensured that Philip II could take over the Greek mainland, something that had never been done by any individual in ancient Greek history. Now, in Roman times, various gods would be thanked for victory, 
particularly the sun god Sol Invictus, the undefeated sun, beginning in the 3rd century AD. But it isn't until the advent of Christianity, specifically the conversion of the first Christian Roman emperor Constantine, that we see some kind of a religious justification used for war. In this case, used against the Sasanian Persians, who had become the superpower to the east of the Roman Empire, replacing the earlier empire of the Parthians. The Sasanian Persian king Shapur II is said to have received a letter from Constantine demanding that Christians in the Sasanian Empire be treated well and have their rights respected. Shapur II, though, saw Constantine's conversion as something that really threatened his empire because there were a fair number of Christians living within Sasanian territory, and this made Shapur II view them with a lot of suspicion, thinking that they could be some kind of a fifth column. Now, Constantine never actually got to lead an invasion of Persia because he was on his way to the River Jordan to be formally baptized when he suddenly sickened and died soon afterward. It was not uncommon at this time in history for Christians to wait until they were practically at the end of their lives to be baptized. The idea was it would wash their souls clean of sin. So actually, after the death of Constantine, Shapur II did a crackdown on the Christian minority of his empire. The official state religion of Persia at this time was Zoroastrianism, so Zoroastrian priests assisted with this persecution. In the early medieval period, Charles the Great, or Charlemagne, the Frankish ruler of the Carolingian dynasty, who was the first ruler in Western Europe to be called a Roman emperor by anybody in many centuries, declared a kind of religious crusade along the lines of what we later see directed into the Holy Land against Muslims, in this case directed against pagan Saxons in the northern part of what is now Germany. His own advisors, who were clergymen, counseled Charlemagne not to do this, that he should try to persuade the Saxons to adopt Christianity rather than force them. But he appears to have seen himself in a similar light to David from the Old Testament, that he had to go to war against the enemies of God and bring them to heel. This turned out to be the longest running of Charlemagne's military campaigns. It took decades to fully pacify the Saxons. In many cases, they were forced into baptism later renounced Christianity, and this led at one point to a massacre of Saxons who had abjured the new faith after Charlemagne won a battle against them. This massacre occurred at Verdun in 782. Now, what historians call today the First Crusade occurred in 1096 through 1099, in which Pope Urban II called upon knights and nobles of Europe to take the Holy Land back from the Muslims who had ruled it for nearly five centuries. Urban II offered a full indulgence to everyone who went on the crusade and made it to the Holy Land. This means forgiveness of sins. And this was a time in history when many Christians in Europe felt that getting into heaven was going to be really difficult. You really had to work at it. And if you were a soldier, this made it especially hard because your job was to go to war and kill people, specifically other Christians. And that was going to make salvation a lot harder for you to achieve. So to be told by the Pope that you're getting your sins forgiven, that was a powerful incentive. An independent wing of the crusading army, sometimes referred to as the Crusade of the Paupers, and under the leadership of Peter the Hermit and Walter Sanzavoir, Walter who has nothing, 
included animals such as a goose and goat that supposedly were inspired by the Holy Spirit to accompany the Crusaders. Now, the very first crusade did succeed in capturing the Holy Land and dividing it into what we call Crusader states, some of which lasted all the way to the end of the 13th century. A substantial number of knights and nobles who had either left the crusading force before it completed its mission or had just flat out refused to go in the first place decided to embark on what came to be known as the Crusade of the Faint-Hearted in 1101, or the Chicken Shit Crusade, if you will. Some members of the nobility, like Hugh of Vermandois, went because they were threatened with excommunication by the new pope, Pascal II, if they didn't go. And then you also have people like Stephen, Count de Blois, who went because his wife continuously shamed him until he agreed. This crusade was unsuccessful, however, after being defeated in a series of battles in what is now Turkey. Jerusalem was lost to the Muslims in 1187. As we go into the 13th century, the crusading phenomenon becomes increasingly bizarre, because not only are there continuous failed attempts to recover Jerusalem and other parts of the former crusader states, but also because popes began to call crusades against anybody they didn't like. One of the strangest was the so-called Sixth Crusade, which was led by Frederick II, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Germany, and also ruler of the Kingdom of Sicily. Frederick II had grown up on the island of Sicily, where he lived in close proximity with a number of Muslims and Jews and knew how to speak Arabic, so he didn't have any particular antipathy against Muslims. He led the Sixth Crusade in order to get a sentence of excommunication that had been pronounced on him by one of the popes lifted. He really had no intention of killing anyone. When he arrived in the Holy Land, he sent a message to the local ruler, Al-Kamil, who was from the Ayyubid family, the dynasty created by Saladin, and asked to meet with him. And after conversation and dinner, Frederick II had a proposal. He simply wanted to be allowed to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and be crowned King of Jerusalem and state that his crusade had been a success. Al-Kamil agreed to this deal, believe it or not. He was very worried about possible challenges from his own relatives and just wanted this German army to sail away and leave him alone. Now, that happened in 1229. There had already been, at this point, crusades in the Baltic region against pagan tribes. But you get a lot of crusades directed against various groups that are seen as heretical. Of course, heretical can mean you just don't listen to the Pope. For example, we have the crusades against the so-called dualist heretics, known as bogomils in Eastern Europe, or often called Cathars in the Western European context. They were accused of holding beliefs such as the world was created by the devil and not by God, so all matter, physical matter, was inherently evil, that people would be reincarnated continuously, coming back to this evil place, unless they live extremely morally pure lives, which enable them to break the cycle of reincarnation and have their souls remain in the realm of pure spirit with God. From 1235 to 41, there was the so-called Bosnian Crusade where Pope Gregory IX called upon the Hungarians to attack these so-called duelists in the region of Bosnia. They invaded, they captured a number of people who were put on trial by Dominican friars and burned at the stake for this heresy. But then the Mongols attacked Hungary, and that drew the Hungarian army home. It might be seen as ironic for a Mongol horde to spoil an inquisition, but that's what happened. As it transpired, the Hungarian army was nearly wiped out at the Battle of Mohi, so they never got to return to Bosnia to complete that crusade. The crusade against the Cathars in the south of France is often known as the Albigensian Crusade. 
In contrast to the one in Bosnia, this one succeeded. It took many decades, but the Cathars were eventually wiped out. Gregory IX called quite a few crusades against many different groups, including disobedient peasants. I realize that this might sound ridiculous, but what I'm referring to is the Stettinger Crusade, which occurred in the region of Stettingen near Bremen, Germany. The peasants were rebelling against what they saw as excessive taxes, as well as attempts to deprive them of legal privileges and ownership of lands where they lived and worked. The local bishop Gerhard and his brother Hermann led a force of knights against these rebellious peasants, but they were defeated and Hermann was killed. Gerhard excommunicated the rebels on his own authority, but he had to approach the Pope in order to get an actual crusade called. But in order to make the crusade appear to be more urgent, they were accused not only of violence and disobedience, but of practicing black magic and engaging in sexual depravities. They were therefore being linked to another very shadowy group called the Luciferians, who had been targeted by Pope Gregory IX in one of his decretals called Vox and Rama, where he condemns these practices and goes into very strange detail including meetings of these people where they encounter a toad the size of a dog, where they have to get in line and kiss a pale, emaciated man who is apparently some incarnation of the devil. And there's a statue of a cat which supposedly comes to life. Everyone present has to kiss the cat's butt. Then they would do things like take consecrated hosts and throw them into latrines. I think one would be hard-pressed to find a weirder papal decree than that one. It resembles more than anything else the fever dreams of an acid casualty. But many people swallowed this nonsense, and the Pope was assisted by a number of important members of the Inquisition, such as Conrad of Marburg. Conrad and his associate called John the One-Eyed because he had a single eye that he claimed could spot heretics, were eventually murdered right around this time after they went after noblemen. The Stettinger peasants were eventually defeated and nearly wiped out at the Battle of Altenesch. The last two crusades that we're going to examine today were unauthorized. They were not formally called by a pope. One example is the Shepherd's Crusade of 1251. This occurred after King Louis IX of France, the future San Louis, or St. Louis, was captured by Muslim forces while leading the Seventh Crusade in Egypt. He was held for ransom, a ransom which was eventually paid. However, the crusaders were inspired by a man known as the Master of Hungary to rescue him because the government was taking too long to save their beloved king. It was said that a vision of the Virgin Mary convinced this so-called master to lead this rescue mission, but what it really turned into was just a rampaging, ragtag band of 'er ne'er-do-wells who attacked clergymen as well as Jewish people. They were eventually broken up and attacked piecemeal by forces sent by the king's mother, Blanche of Castile, and the so-called master of Hungary was killed outside the city of Bourges. And lastly, we have something that has actually worked its way into the popular imagination to some degree. This is known as the Children's Crusade of 1212. What seems to have happened here is that a number of different stories were blended together by later chroniclers into the concept of a crusade comprised of children. When in fact, that wasn't really the case. It seems like this was a crusade mainly of poorer people and those on the margins of society. 
but there were children who were supposedly divinely inspired who were seen as its leaders. There were two main groups, one led by Nicholas of Cologne, coming from the Rhineland in Germany, and another contingent led by Stephen of Cloy from northern France. The French group did not get particularly far. They actually met with the King of France, Philip II, who was not particularly impressed by them. Nicholas of Cologne led the German group down to the Italian port city of Genoa, and there was a rumor circulating that the sea would part in front of them and they would literally be able to walk across the Mediterranean seafloor. When this didn't happen, a lot of people flipped out a little bit, had panic attacks, or extremely disappointed at the cognitive dissonance. But Nicholas himself made it down to Rome and actually met with Pope Innocent III, who promptly told him to turn around and go home. It's said that Nicholas died on his way back, trying to cross through the Alps, and that his father became a scapegoat because there were many people, including children from Nicholas's hometown, that had gone on this crusade and had failed to come back, and the relatives blamed Nicholas's father for the whole affair, and they actually lynched him. Another version of the story states that some of the crusaders made it down to the port of Marseille in the south of France, where a ship owner offered to take them to North Africa. Instead, he sold them into slavery. There's also a side story that a number of them perished in a shipwreck off the coast of Sardinia. Thanks, everyone, for going crusading with me for a while today. I'm looking forward to having you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.